0: Matt Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. this episode of Mythic Christ. We have lost something as a culture that's so difficult to describe or even understand. We've even lost the language, the ritual container as humans that we need to become conscious of all these ambiguous losses that we digest, all this untended grief that's buried in the body, both individually and collectively. It's as if we've lost something real, lost something we might never get back. Perhaps, in a certain way, reality itself is on the line. Guy Debord wrote a landmark work, The Society of the Spectacle, in 1967. It's a fascinating book. He tracks the shift from the early stage of the Industrial Revolution. When something happened, we exchanged a depth of being as humans for an obsessive need with having. We exchanged something essential to the core of being human and lost something in the process. You might say this is the archetype of exile that is so prevalent throughout the Judeo-Christian scriptures, exiling ourselves even further as a collective in this modern age from something real, something tangible, something felt, somatic, numinous, divine, animacy. in the age of the Anthropocene, we're marked by a late-stage capitalism, and we watch the stock markets as we too are plunged further into existential chaos, this sort of exile that comes from the heavy price of exchanging having for mere appearing. We live in a world of appearances mediated by screens, and are now sensing this catastrophic loss of meaning and hope and physical and human and more than human connection. This is what Debord calls the Society of the Spectacle. He says, quote, The spectacle is a social relation between people that is mediated by an accumulation of images that serve to alienate us from a genuinely lived life. End quote. Our episode today begins an exploration of what I call the mythic Christ, in this case, the old myth that has become domesticated. The Christ myth has been deanimated, historically disembodied, abstracted and universalized from its local context, that deep sense of enfleshment in sacred place and the stories of that place. Up until this modern industrial age, most earth-based peoples understood that place always has a face, the original Hebrew creation myths express this idea that the earth herself has a face and the divine human face is the icon of creation. This image of the face of the ground is more than poetic. It's an expression of a deep abiding essential animacy at the core of being human. So this word flesh, this, this sense of embodiment that we are bodies moving through a world that is a body comprised of billions of other living bodies, that the world itself is a kind of interface that is filled with apertures of portals of knowing and being known, these open gateways of erotic touch, of ecstatic feeling, of emotive expression, intense imaginal depths, sentience, memory, and interiority. The face we'll explore represents the animacy of the cosmos and our own animate, emergent rootedness in this vast, sentient symphony of creation. This time on Mythic Christ, Don't Turn Your Face Away, Exploring the Myth of Exile and Return. happened in our times. Can you feel it? Maybe it's like this subtle intuition of something malevolent, something silent and methodical. It's like we've all lost something, all of us. Can you feel it? The ambiguous loss, I mean. The one you do not have the language to name. Language gives us this false sense of control, what we can name, we own, we control. But this loss, it's beyond names. It's so much bigger than you or I, so much deeper than how we see ourselves, how we see others. Deeper than the political world that allows us to speak only about certain things. It's deeper than your spiritual intuitions, your religious concepts, all the roiling and restless angst that gathers in the stream of your body like foam on the riffle, always spilling over the smooth stones of our polished lives, worn out relationships, this collective loss of language that we've inherited as Westerners, as well of tears that we've never cried. It makes it impossible, you know, to describe what's real anymore what we really truly feel no it's it's old what we've lost very old and there is the possibility that what has been lost can never be recovered never and the body senses it our cells our beating heart if we could simply be our bodies. Its memory lives in our soft tissue, the memory of what we've lost. Images spiraling up through our spine, our nervous system. Can you sense it? Can you feel underneath the animal your beating heart, can you feel it, the last hyphae of contact with the darkness? Just extend your perception a bit further, deeper, if you can, let your longing reach beyond your life, tending only to the feeling of real, real loss. this existential loss, a loss of something of immeasurable value. We have lost the face. What face? I'm not talking about anything as simple as losing our identity as humans, although in some sense that's true. Guy Debord in the landmark book The Society of the Spectacle says that in early stage of the Industrial Revolution we exchanged being for having, and in late stage capitalism we went much further and exchanged having for appearing. Appearing. Debord writes this quote. Just as early industrial capitalism moved the focus of existence from being to having, post-industrial culture has moved that focus from having to appearing. He goes on to explain, The spectacle is a social relation between people that is mediated by an accumulation of images that serve to alienate us from a genuinely lived life. These images, he says, in the case of late-stage capitalism, are a mutation of the form of commodity fetishism, end quote. Our lives haphazardly constructed from surface appearances, screens really that mediate this loss by exchanging the truth, the truth society doesn't want us to remember for their lie. Even our language itself lies to us in a certain sense. We speak oftentimes of losing face in an honor and shame culture. We lose face or we save face or how how can we get more FaceTime with those we love? Even the name Facebook, the largest social media enterprise in the world, understands the power of the face, the power of the visage, the image. And we're getting closer when we speak of what does it mean to be face-to-face, to show one's true face, a face we have lost indeed, the face. One of the creation myths in Genesis says this, a stream, some translations, a mist would arise from the earth, ha-Eretz, and water the whole face of the ground, panim ha-adamah. And then Adonai Elohim formed the human from the dust of the ground, ha-adam-apar-min ha adamah And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human one became a living soul, a living being, nefesh chaya, A stream would rise and water the whole face of the ground. We don't have language or consciousness as modern Western people to really capture that deep and essential reality of this term face, this Hebrew word panim. In the Genesis myths, in the beginning of the dreaming, you might say, darkness was on the face of the deep, of the depths. A wind of God, the breath of God, a spirit from God, moved upon the face of the waters. A mist, a stream, would arise and water the whole face of the ground. Adam and his partner, we come to know as Eve, hid themselves from the capital P Presence, the Presence the face of Adonai Elohim, the face. At the turn of the Neolithic, according to the myth in Genesis chapter four, the human one was driven out from the face of the earth, it says, from the face of the earth, the human cast out, exiled from the sentient fabric and generative mirroring presence of the earth, vital. This Hebrew parallelism here is curious and cuts to the heart. Adam says, and from thy face, this is Adam speaking to the Lord, from thy face shall I be hidden. And so the face of the earth and the face of Adonai are united in this parallelism. They're one face, surface, the surface. Have you ever thought about that? What is a surface? Our whole lives are mediated by surfaces, from our computer screens as we work to the black glass of our cell phones, or our office desks, sheets of paper, these white surfaces that can be inscribed upon. We think of surface as being somewhat synonymous with shallow, but the etymology of surface comes from sur and face, sur meaning over or above the face, literally over the face. So the face is the appearance, as in epiphany, as in revelation. It is the countenance. It is the presence, the present essence of the thing. In the Greek word, it's prosopon, which means actually toward look. It means toward look, the face It's a mutual turning toward and looking, seeing, beholding, presencing. It's an intimate, living, relational icon, presencing, personing, touching, being touched. It is the interface of intimacy, of intimate connection. It is the world touching and being touched by a breathing, permeable, sentient other. You see, face, panim, it is the essence of true animacy. The world is animate lover, an animate thou, a thou whose surface gives back to us by virtue of the sheer magnificent reality of its own thouness, and therefore our own I-ness, I-thou, face to face intimate, unmediated, related world within worlds. The face. Celtic poet the late John O'Donohue says this, quote, the human face is the icon of creation. Each person also has an interface which is always sensed but never seen. And I would add that every being, every landscape has an inner face, a sacred interiority just waiting to be seen, felt, sensed, imagined, praised, presenced, apprenticed. In Anamkara, John O'Donohue says, Landscape was here on its own. It is the most ancient presence in the world, though it needs a human presence to acknowledge it. Central to the ancient Irish mind was the mythological world of the Tuatha de Danann, the tribe that lived under the surface of the earth in Ireland. This myth had imbued the whole landscape with a numinous depth and presence. He goes on to say, quote, The silence of landscape conceals vast presence. Place is not simply location. A place is a profound individuality. Its surface texture of grass and stone is blessed by rain, wind, and light. The shape of a landscape is an ancient and silent form of consciousness. The earth is full of soul. But something happened. Something happened long ago in that shift, that shift from oral transmission of story and myth and ritual to the new emerging technology of pictographic symbols, letters, resulting in the advent of writing that created a widening chasm between human culture and consciousness and the natural world. David Abram notes, quote, with the advent of the Aleph Bet, which was the uh, Hebrew uh, methodology, technology of writing, a new distance opens between human culture and the rest of nature. To be sure, pictographic and ideographic writing already involved displacement of our sensory participation from the depths of the animate environment to the flat surface of our walls, of clay tablets, of the sheet of papyrus. He goes on to say, quote, The written images themselves often related us back to the other animals and the environing earth, end quote. This is really a quite a brilliant idea, actually. Essentially, what he's saying is that exile is the displacement of our sensory perception from the deep participation in the depths of an animate world to the flat surface, the flat surface of our desks, our walls, our homes and office buildings, our books, our smartphones, our TV screens. Exile is displacement. And the written word itself has even now been displaced by the image, for the image is a simulacrum of animate reality, and our technology is a vehicle of sensory and bodily exile, alienation from the deep animate matrix of nature in all her multiplicitous forms. We are banished from the garden, from the face of the ground, and all we are left with is vestigial traces from another world and time. David Abram goes on to say, quote, these traces of sensible nature linger in the new script only as vestigial holdovers from the old. They are no longer necessary participants in the transfer of linguistic knowledge. The other animals, the plants, and the natural elements, sun, moon, stars, waves, are beginning to lose their own voices in the Hebrew Genesis, the animals do not speak their own names to Adam. Rather, they are given their names by this first man. Language for the Hebrews was becoming a purely human gift, a human power." End quote. We have been removed in a certain sense by these wild landscapes, the wild landscape of our own body, this clay body, this meeting place of the four elements. For the human person is a clay shape living in this medium, the substrate of air and the fire of blood and thought and soul that moves through the body, the whole life and energy flow of this circular body through the water element, the clay landscape of the human body that has come up from the depths of the earth, that has come up from this woven matrix over millions and billions of years, these deep continents of clay that will never have the opportunity to leave this dark, womb-like world. This inner landscape was also mirrored by the outer, visible landscape that was teeming with information and memory and imagery, imagination that this outer landscape was not only visible, but it provided a deep source of identity, a mnemonic of memory and oral tradition of song and ritual. Culture was rooted in landscape in the natural world. In fact, the root of culture is the Latin cultus, which is the same word that we have for religious form, for a religious body. It is how we ground in what is ultimate. We root and orient ourselves in a living universe, a living cosmos. And landscape, visible, wild landscape was an integral map, an integral pattern for ritually and ecstatically orienting ourselves in a living universe tribal culture and ancestral stories, the memory of the people is actually encoded into the living fabric of the landscape. David Abram captures a pretty profound understanding of the nature of the written word. Quote, while the visible landscape provides an oral tribal culture with a necessary mnemonic or memory trigger for remembering its ancestral stories, alphabetic writing enabled the Hebrew tribes to preserve their cultural stories intact, even when the people were cut off for many generations from the actual lands where those stories had taken place. By carrying on its lettered surface the vital stories earlier carried by the terrain itself, the written text became a kind of portable homeland for the Hebrew people. And indeed, it is only thus by virtue of this portable ground that the Jewish people have been able to preserve their singular culture and thus themselves, while in an almost perpetual state of exile from the actual lands where their ancestral stories unfolded." End quote. The written word became a kind of ark that enabled the Hebrew people to be carried safely across the surging chaos of the flood, the floodwaters. The flood symbolizing this great disseverance from earth its dark waters signifying the chaos of loosed unconscious forces no longer tethered and stewarded by sacred place. Only this ark never returns to home in the animate cosmos but is left adrift in exile in perpetuity. It would be nearly impossible perhaps to understand the Hebrew or the Christian mythos without a deep and agonizing understanding of such existential exile David Abram says, The most ancient stratum of the Hebrew Bible is structured from the first by the motif of exile, from the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to the long wandering of the Israelites in the desert. The Jewish sense of exile was never merely a state of separation from a specific locale, from a particular group. It was and is also a sense of separation from the very possibility of being placed, from the very possibility of being entirely at home. The pain, the sadness of this exile is precisely the trace of what has been lost, the intimation of a forgotten intimacy. The narratives in Genesis remain deeply attuned to the animistic power of places. It is this lingering power that lends such poignancy to the motifs of Exodus and exile." End quote. The human face is an icon of personhood, and as that icon it manifests the deep interiority of the world itself. For the ancient Hebrews, earth is the ground, the womb of the cosmos. It's what David Abram calls, quote, the secret depth of the life world. It is the most unfathomable region of experience an enigma that exceeds the structurations of any particular culture or language, end quote. This interface is a region of deep memory, interiority, emergent selfhood that makes true belonging possible through relatedness. What we are talking about then is really an ancient animist phenomenology. David Abram grounds his work in the spell of the sensuous and thinkers like Husserl, who understands the experiential field of reality as a participation of intersubjective phenomena, phenomena experienced by a multiplicity of sensing subjects. From this perspective, the notion of objectivity is a fantasy understood phenomenologically as simply, quote, striving to achieve greater consensus, greater agreement or consonance among a plurality of subjects rather than an attempt to avoid subjectivity altogether, end quote. The invention of a pure objective reality furthered to exile humanity from this deep field of direct animate perception, participation, and belonging. Maurice Merleau-Ponty decentralized conscious human experience of the world, rejecting the quote, assumption of a self-subsistent, disembodied, transcendental ego, end quote. The body itself is the true subject of experience. body, follow the breath into the body, breathing deep to the clay of your flesh. Enter through the portal into relationship, deep relationship with other presences, inter-animacies, sentience, without these eyes, without this voice. be unable to see, to taste, to touch things, to be touched by them, this living world, without Self is the true subject of experience, Abram writes. And I might add, the world experiencing itself in and through us. And this is what I might call deep phenomenology. Don't turn your face away. The sciences may have uprooted, exiled themselves from this deep perceptual field of intersubjectivity, But this interface is their true home. Abram writes, Every theoretical and scientific practice grows out of and remains supported by the forgotten ground of our directly felt and lived experience, and has value and meaning only in reference to this primordial and open realm. This primordial and open realm... In the 139th Psalm, the poet captures the animate interiority of this primordial realm, this sentient intimacy, this mother presence of these earthen depths, what I call the deep world. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed body, my unformed substance. Your face, woven, womb, belly, body, frame, power, clay, lower parts, netherworld, underworld, all of this paints an image of the deep structure of the world's mythosomatic body. And this, this depth is feminine, underworldly, womb-like. For the ancient Hebrews, like any animus culture, earth was personified as a great embodied being, and the lower parts corresponded to moving downward into the belly, where fertile, thonic alchemy happens the womb where the birth of worlds awaits. This dark underland is also a sacred place of death, which is the Hebrew concept Sheol, where one can even feel cut off from the middle world surfaces of life, from the idiosyncrasies and mundane nature of collective corporate life. And one is woven anew in the secret depths of things, hidden in a new kind of vision or consciousness, becomes possible. So the face that we've actually lost, this ancient, unnameable grief, you might say, is like an invisible mirror in the heart of the dream itself, in the heart of the world itself. An invisible mirror, and it reflects the truth of who we are, of what we are, And maybe even that we are. Poet David White says in All the True Vows this, there is only one life you can call your own and a thousand others you can call by any name you want. Hold to the truth you make every day with your own body. Hold to the truth you make every day with your own body. Don't turn your face away. Hold to the truth at the center of the image you were born with. Don't turn your face away. Don't turn your face away. David Abram captures this idea of interiority in a really beautiful way. Interiority is almost this veil between two distinct worlds that connect that surface together, and he calls it the flesh of the world. And I love this phrase, the flesh of the world, because it captures the essence of what incarnation actually is. It's an enfleshment, an embodying forth, a communication, an interface between two living, shimmering, animately alive surfaces. The world itself is a threshold of mysterious enfleshment, a threshold of bodies turned toward one another as a face. This threshold both distances and unites these mutually entangled worlds, these mutually interior selves, these worlds that share an unseen interiority or depth. This is what we've lost. You see, what we would consider at first glance the surface of a landscape, it it changes when we consider it. A living face, the face of the land, this vast and silent presence, this sacramental reality that is a keeper of ancient memory of deep interiority that is storied in a certain sense, embedded like age lines in one's own skin. And that this memory and this presence and this depth of meaning and conversation can be met, can be touched between our body and the body of the landscape and all embodied beings that live and move within it. And so we can actually experience the flesh of the world like a skin composed of countless living, self-organizing patterns and countless sentient relationships. And that this skin is our threshold to deeper relatedness, to deeper conversation. Our own unfolding is a process within the unfolding of the land, within the unfolding of earth. Back to Genesis chapter two, Adam and his name, Adama, of the ground, that mystery emerging from the very face of the earth. That is our story, mythically speaking. O'Donohue elsewhere says something to this extent. He calls the landscape a mother presence, this mother presence of landscape of the world that finds its fulfillment, its actualization in the human face which is the icon of creation, he says. The face of the universe turns toward itself in the human face. It beholds itself in the human face, an embodiment. In the second letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament, the author says this, and all of us and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory, light, Shekinah, to another consciousness. The human face, the human self, is the icon, the image of the more-than-human cosmos. It is the microcosm of the greater macrocosm. And we are to be transformed into that same image. This is what David White speaks so poetically, is the truth at the center of the image you are born with the truth at the center of the image you are born with, the truth you make every day with your own body. Don't turn your face away, don't turn away. So precisely in the myth of exile, of our estrangement from the animate ground of belonging comes an invitation to return, to come home through mythic imagination. And I just wanted to say a little something about myth for a moment here. And you'll hear me say a lot about myth on this podcast, <laughs> but it's, it's really important to understand that myth is not just a pre-scientific way of understanding the world. It's an intuitive revelation of the deep structure of the world itself, the pattern, the framework, the map. Myth is what we live actually myth is the shape the pattern of the world of the worlds that we inhabit myth forms the very center of community of communion it is the pattern of meaning and of life itself it is mapped through ritual space and cultural space-time myth as a language of images, marks and outlines specific psycho-spiritual terrain that may be explored and and enacted through ritual embodiment. And just to say a little something about the trance state, which we won't get into here, but the trance state is really the portal, it's the doorway, it's the opening of the eyes, a portal or threshold that links the transpersonal dimensions of what we're calling here the God image so that the worshiper or the priestess or the prophet can return her energy to the embodied interpersonal realm of the community. It can return her energy, her image, her gift. And so trance is one of the primary vehicles for awakening mythic imagination. It's a crossing over and through trance, the walls of our ordinary awareness, our egoic consciousness, uh, dissolves, and it falls like the walls of Jericho, (laughs) so that we can experience this unitive Christ archetype. One way of saying this is that the Christ myth is actually a story of finding one's face again. But this hero doesn't have a thousand faces, it only has yours, it only has mine, it only has ours. So you could say that the face is an archetype of the self, of the soul, of our deepest identity and place of belonging. And because it is an archetype of the soul, it's also an image of the soul of the world, the anima mundi. The face is that which sees and is seen, that which beholds and is beheld. All of this is held in myth. Myth is not just an interesting story that's told, but it's the teller and the speaking. It's the listener and the hearing. It's the land, the community, and the living. It's the sacred ritual and the embodying. It's the dreamer and the dreaming. It is the deep time of a past that is always presencing, and it is a future that is always becoming. As mythologist Martin Shaw says, myth is the wildest way of telling the truth the wildest way of telling the truth. I love that, wild. It's untamed, undomesticated. It's spontaneous of the earth. It has no limitations or boundaries. It speaks through the depths of the world. It's wild because it's a truth that actually comes from earth herself, myth. And mythic imagination experiences reality in a certain sense, like a dream and dream as reality. It dissolves those conceptual boundaries that we create through its performative roots in ecstatic consciousness. Mythic imagination cannot be domesticated by the abstract fetters of religious dogma. This is really important. Myth is not concerned with doctrine and dogma, Exactly. Doctrine and dogma are that which protects and keeps us safe from the numinous powers of reality. But myth is able to hold it, to contain it in a certain way, just like the forces of greening life itself. It bubbles up like an artesian spring. It bursts upward from rooted soil, uncontrolled, like vines reaching, exploring, searching the surface of stone walls. I also want to say a little something about archetypes here, and uh, this is part of one of the layers of this podcast, is sort of bridging these dimensions uh, a little more consciously in a way that we can explore together, and of course we have practices that help us to experience it, but I want to say a little something about archetypes. They're often explained as universal patterns. And you might think of these patterns being hidden in the depths of the soul. In fact, images are the language of the soul. And as universal patterns of energy, archetypes emerge sort of in this psycho-spiritual layer just above instinct. Archetypes sort of inhabit this threshold between consciousness and the unconscious. It's like they stand leaning over the precipice of this abyss we might call pure nature, archetypes. Literally, they mean first forms, types, archae and types, but it's so dry and academic that it hides the dynamic deities they once were worshipped as, you might say. Archetypes are autonomous, they're thonic, they're primordial, these primordial energies that are channeled up through instinct and they're drawn to, attracted to certain images, like an energetic field. And we often personify and embody the archetypes through mimicry, mimesis. So we could speak of gods and goddesses uh, and archetypes in kind of the same way. One is more of a religious mythic way and the other is a more of a psychological way of understanding what archetypes really are. Myth gives a face to the ground then. And the Christ myth is a story of finding one's true face. There's something about this particular way of relating that is absolutely core to life itself. James Hillman says that in order to love, we must personify. In order to love, we must personify. The animistic core of our being longs to address the cosmos as alive, as a living person as a community of personalities of persons, as teeming with sentient personalities that we were born to be in relationship with. And so personification is really to see one's own face reflected in those primordial waters. Not to fall in love with this reflection as in the myth of Narcissus, but in order to be in conversation with mystery, to really truly connect with these unseen powers we must identify with those deep underground symmetries that emerge from the world within our world itself So personification is something about giving the gods and goddesses form, dressing them up in human clothing and the masks of human-like faces, animal faces. Personifying gives them access, gives us access to the deep sap of life, the nectar of immortality waiting in the deep subjective strata of the imaginal realm. And that's what this personifying power of myth can do. It gives a face to the world. And in so doing, it returns to us our own true face hidden in the dust of the ground. The pathological opposite of personification, says Hillman, is depersonalization. Depersonalization is the condition of our state of consciousness in the world as modern Western humans. And depersonalization is marked by a life not only devoid of meaning, but especially devoid of feeling. It's a a certain numbness, which, mythically speaking, is the void. Without a recognition of personification in ourselves and the world around us, says Hillman, quote, there is a loss of a mediator, the animating factor between archetypal reality and everyday life, end quote. What he's saying is that we lose the capacity to truly distinguish ourselves from others and that this is not only a psychic loss but a loss of cosmology which only a reawakening of mythic consciousness can restore. Poet David White from River Flow writes this wonderful poem called Fire in the Earth that expresses the deep animacy and relatedness to the ground that is the gift of mythic imagination. And it goes like this. And we know when Moses was told, in the way he was told, take off your shoes. He grew pale from that simple reminder of fire and the dusty earth. He never recovered his complicated way of loving again and was free to love in the same way he felt the fire licking at his heels loved him. As if the lion earth could roar and take him in one movement. Every step he took from there was carefully placed. Everything he said mattered, as if he knew, the constant witness of the ground, and remembered his own face in the dust. The moment before revelation. Since then, thousands have felt the same immobile tongue with which he tried to speak. Like the moment you too saw for the first time. Your own house turned to ashes. Everything consumed so the road could open again. Your entire presence in your eyes and the world turning slowly into a single branch of flame. myth of exile and return feels really important to explore in this first episode of the Mythic Christ podcast. There's something about it that is really core, it's really elemental for me, the the why of creating this podcast in general. And I think one reason is the state of our world right now. Every moment feels historic in a certain sense. For example, the recording of this episode happens to be on the 15th day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's said it's one of the largest humanitarian crises since the Second World War. And as of today, nearly two million refugees, mostly women and children, have fled Ukraine. And there's likely to be up to three million more. Uh, I was also noticing the death toll from the coronavirus pandemic has surpassed six million people. So there's these great deep tectonic shifts happening underneath the collective surface of our psychic lives, whether we're consciousness of it or not, whether we can feel it or not. In a certain sense, maybe the pandemic is ultimately a psychic contagion in which these collective unconscious contents are beginning to surface and constellate and patterns of despair in our culture and violence and destruction. The walls of meaning and the scaffolding of order and certitude that defined modernity have certainly been torn down, ripped down to the studs. And my sense is that ordinary Americans, folks in Canada and Europe and westernized cultures, maybe everywhere, are left feeling exposed in an ambivalent and ambiguous way, unprotected in a certain sense from... Many of the social contracts and conventions that once clearly marked and defined civic life. A time when church and school and our civic relationships nurtured our sense of meaning, our sense of belonging. And so it's an understatement to say that this has been a polarizing time. And our exposure to events happening around the world in real time, happening beyond our control, just sound bites and news headings and things like that has proliferated, has, has um, been this steady barrage in a certain sense. And it's expanded and expanded more than ever before any other time in history. And so even our worlds of trusted loved ones, our tribes, you could say, our little circles have shrunk and left us in ambivalent relationships within greater society. Every moment has become more reactive, hasn't it? Every political decision is highly charged. Every word has become property of the public. It's measured and judged, criticized and analyzed. And there's a sense that we all feel like we should have something to say, right? Like who Who doesn't go on Facebook and see a barrage of posts taking an opinion? or expressing something on this or that, and yet we're more fragile than ever, and our fragility and our privilege has made us prone to pretty astounding hubris and hypocrisy, if we're honest, and social media has made us both ambiguously anonymous and also accountable in a way we've never experienced before, accountable to scrutiny and so it's, it's as if there's been this flattening of life, a shallowing and a stagnating of meaning and connection, maybe a brittleness to the collective coherence of society that feels like we just might shatter at any moment, a deep psychic rupture in our human cognition, our sense of time and memory and meaning. Carl Jung prophetically said that we are living in an age between myths, an age between myths. The social glue and cohesion of collective meaning and progress that marked the previous generations has collapsed. And along with it, Christendom has crumbled. And the God images of the modern era are bereft. In the Wasteland, T.S. Eliot expresses it as a heap of broken images And yet even Jung sort of foreshadowed, foresaw that Christ is the still living myth of our culture, the living myth. There's a lot to that phrase, which we'll unpack in further episodes. But while the world has changed considerably since Jung... Only now, perhaps, is the the depth of his vision opening new realms of consciousness and humanity, one that we might call passages or portals through some uncertain, unknown, mysterious evolutionary threshold. And so what I want to explore is the ways that the psychological god image that has been the center of the self, the truth at the center of the image we were born with, according to David White, that this god image has been marred, distorted, it's suffered a collective contagion, and that perhaps our god images are dying and these deep, thonic, wild, feminine energies Roaring like lion earth, roaring, emerging, pulsing and raging up through the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth, ha'eretz and water the whole face of the ground, Pani Then Adonai Elohim formed the human one from the dust of the ground, Ha apar min ha'adamah, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human one became a living being, nefesh chayah. And Adonai Elohim planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the human one where he informed. Lying behind this great myth of Genesis chapter 2 are older oral traditions, stories of hunter gatherer days at the cusp of the agricultural turn in the Neolithic. We're invited to remember the face, Anim, the surface. That skin and body and blood of earth from which the human one emerged like life from the ground. The ground is the face. It is that threshold of porous contact with the living other, deep, intimate, sensual relationship with earth, as I with thou, that great mystery, numinous relationship with the land as the ground of existence. This ground is feminine, personified, animate matrix of all of life, from whence the name Eve comes, the mother of all living goddess. And in this way, the poetry of Genesis emerged from a much older oral animistic tradition. Adam or Adama is literally of the ground, of earth, of clay, of mother, that primordial human one, not yet gendered, shaped from the red clay. And this common motif can be found in all indigenous creation myths on several continents, the Dene creation myth, in which humans came up from under the ground, from the glittering world, fourth world. And Here the garden is an archetypal image of original wholeness, a mandala of homecoming, of the self. And we hear the four great rivers like branches flowing in the four sacred directions from the garden, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the great river, the Euphrates. Celtic spirituality understands the garden as a metaphor, as the territory of the soul, our deepest place of belonging. And the curse that we see later in Genesis chapter four is to be driven out, to be literally cast out or outcast from the face of the ground. And it goes on to say, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. And so here we see in the very originating creation myth of the Hebrews, um, a wonderful Hebrew parallelism, the split from nature, from ground or self, that which is identified with the matrix of the ground, the mother, the goddess, is also a split from Yahweh, from Arunai Elohim, This is the original myth of exile and return. What this myth tells us is that the primordial human, the primordial self is discovered through the archetype of the green man, the green woman, this earth creature who is shaped from clay, who's taken from the body of the ground, who's given birth from the great mother and who is breathed into the breath of life into the nostrils and only then does this primordial human one become a living soul which in the Hebrew is nefesh chaya the same breath that awakens the same living soul shared by all living represented in the archetype of Eve the great mother who is identified with the earth it's less understood that nefesh chaya this word we translate living soul also means animal soul, that the soul, the anima, is actually the animate life force, the sentience, the inspirational life, the erotic pulse, the intuition and instinct that animates everything that's alive. And in oral tradition, it's understood as an animal spirit and what totemic cultures would understand as animal powers. Isn't that fascinating that the closest equivalent to the soul, to the anima or the animal in the Greek is psyche, psyche. So there's something intrinsic to the psyche at the level of instinct undergirding all archetypal imagery and power in life that animates us, that is associated with the animal powers themselves, the great primordial cosmic rhythms and forces and cycles of all of nature and that this primordial human one was taken from the body of earth mother that which is clay as eve was taken from the body of adam not from male but from human and the syzygy was made that which is male and that which is female in one being endowed with animal soul directly by the mouth and the breath of the God of Adonai Elohim and in this earth-based oral tradition Eve as the mother of all living the archetype of the great mother is also the original green woman in so far that she is identified with the thonic fertile animate powers of earth itself and so in the beginning, in this old oral myth, the pair of opposites are set out uh, that will that the myth will follow. The sky is separated from the ground, the masculine is separated from the feminine, the animal from the human, and they each find belonging and sentience from the ground and from the breath, which unites them. Clay and soul come together to form something new, a living being, nefesh chaya, a living soul, And so there is a green woman and a green man of all of us, writhing with the vines that blossom with the scent of nectar and flowers, fruits of gifts in our efforts, effortless roots that ground us in the red clay of our sensual bodies and the sentient landscapes which always call us home. The green one fully belongs. The green one is always at home, indigenous, born from within, from within the body, from within the sensual, intimate, instinctual body housed in the great storms of the emotions, like the terrain during a summer rain, tracking the instincts the way that wild animals belong to their habitat. This one relishes in the ecstasy of the storm and the emotions that pass through our inner landscapes. This one knows how to read the atmosphere and the seasons and the change of the breeze. This one can call down the lightning of ecstatic emotion and the erotic charge of life in all its abundance. Do you know this green one? Do you know this one who calls you home? You see the history of the church has been one of fear of this green one. One of domestication and suppression of the Adama, the one who is of the ground, who has split Eve, the mother of all the living, from her male counterpart and banished her behind cloistered doors a history that has oppressed earth-based peoples and tribes. Like Esau, the wild twin of Jacob, who is described as a red and hairy man of the fields, which later theology in the medieval period picked up in the word heathen, which means of the heath, of the wild and unkempt fields. Esau, whose primogenitor was stolen by Jacob, the domesticated child who would later become Israel. The one who knows the way home is the wild man, the wild woman, the old mythopoetic men's movement Robert Bly explored as the wild man archetype in Iron John. But even the green woman is greatly suppressed, this one who is exemplified in the Greek goddess Artemis the huntress and protectress of life. In the banished and scandalized second wife of Adam named Lilith from Mesopotamian and Jewish myth, the first wife of Adam, Lilith, appears in art, and sacred art, as naked and wrapped by the serpent under the tree. And that root of the word Lilith in its original Semitic uh, form is actually associated with tree Newmans, with the tree spirits, and according to legend, she was banished from the garden earlier than the story of Adam and Eve, and she represents the exiled, wild, and erotic green woman who was demonized in later folklore as a type of demon or night hag or death mother. Do you know her? this green woman of earth? Do you know this great goddess, this mother of all living? Do you remember Eve, who ate of the fruit of knowledge whose eyes were opened? Do you remember the Queen of Heaven, the woman crowned with the stars, with the moon under her feet? Do you remember Mary? The late John O'Donohue, priest turned Celtic poet, writes in his book Anamkara, Book of Celtic Wisdom. He opens his prologue with this profound invitation to remember home. It is strange to be here, he says. Quote, The mystery never leaves you alone. Behind your image, behind your words, above your thoughts, the silence of another world awaits. A world lives within you. No one else can bring you news of this inner world. If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythicchrist. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n com slash mythicchrist. Mythic Christ offers online community for exploring the mythic structures of story, archetype, dream, and the deep imaginal realm, supporting the awakening of individuals who are sensing a collective longing and a desire to rewild these divine images in the sacred, spirit-breathed ground of the natural world. Patronage levels start for as low as $6 a month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site, including early access to new podcasts, downloadable guided practices for deepening your own journey, complimentary mentoring and dreamwork sessions, early notification of courses, programs, discounts, and more. Thank you for supporting Mythic Christ. This episode references articles, songs, books, and other incredible sources I want to reference here. Guy Debord's landmark work, The Society of the Spectacle, from 1967. David Abrams' The Spell of the Sensuous. John O'Donohue, Anam Cara, A Book of Celtic Wisdom. Several of the works of mythologist Martin Shaw, Tokopa Turner's book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. And of course, Carl Jung, The Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious from the Bolligen series. James Hillman quoted from an online blog, Personification from Theoria, Explorations, and Contemplative Writing by Deborah Rogers. Poet David White, Fire in the Earth from River Flow. And as always, the Bible, in particular Genesis, Psalm 139, and 2 Corinthians. Special musical credit for this episode goes to Two Hawks in his powerful album Sends a Voice, also to Nils Aslek, Velkea Pa'a, Johann Anders Baer, Essa Kutulainen, Seppo Pakunainen, in their offering the voice of the Sami through their album Winter Games. Thank you for joining us for this, what I call episode zero of the Mythic Christ podcast. And this is sort of a teaser in a certain sense for launching our new podcast here in September of 2022. I Hope you enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry, That is yours to live. Amen and Awen, may it be so.